talk is Beyond Act Accuracy and Bias, The Pursuit of Ethical AI and Criminal Law. And this is work that I've been actually working on uh, for the Oxford Handbook on Ethics and AI that Professor Huber is actually um, one of the editors of. And um, the way the talk is gonna go is uh, I'm first gonna try to contextualize the phrase AI uh, within a longer trajectory of statistical discourse within uh, the US penal uh, system. Uh, so I am focusing specifically on the United States because that's where most of my work has been based, but I'd love in the Q&A to talk about uh, parallels and divergences uh, with the context here. Uh, after that, I'm gonna talk about uh, the aspirations and criticisms that have emerged in this current debate around algorithmic reform before outlining some of the current work that's been doing, that's been going on uh, in an attempt to render algorithms in the criminal justice system more fair, accountable, and transparent. Uh, then I'm gonna go on to make actually a critique of a lot of those efforts that are going on, particularly within um, present day scholarship and academia, as well as in, um, within industry. And then I'm gonna try to uh, paint a picture about how we might think about moving forward based on those critiques that I made. So the term AI has really started to emerge um, uh, in, um, uh, in kind of government and policy making circles over the last few years. And I, uh, I think that's best reflected in kind of some of these excerpts from um, calls for proposals from Depar the Department of Justice, the National um, Institute of Justice, which is the research arm of the DOJ in the United States. And I think some of the language here is really interesting around kind of thinking about the potential of artificial intelligence for community safety uh, in the reduction of crime. Um, and, and really um, some of this language around the potential for AI to be this transformative force in the criminal justice system. At the same time, AI has also been a concept that's received a lot of pushback and criticism within both popular discourse and within academia. So specifically, criminal justice applications that have been termed AI um, have been really pop become really popular case studies uh, within academic circles uh, regarding kind of the near-term social implications of artificial intelligence. And up here, I just have a few different headlines that represent quite a wide range of technologies that have fallen underneath this heading of artificial intelligence. Uh, and they're quite diverse. So um, it encompasses things such as um, predictive policing, uh, uh, facial recognition, uh, which are technologies that are based on machine learning, uh, other computational techniques that really have emerged in this age of big data when we have uh, increasingly large amounts of data on which we can uh, develop um, some of these systems. But it's also included things like risk assessment and uh, other decades-old actuarial tools that um, really um, uh, aren't anything new when it comes to kind of uh, technologies that are used in the criminal justice system and, and are based on uh, more um, old-school statistical techniques like logistic regression. Um, broadly speaking, though, all of these technologies um, can be characterized as a mixture of um, new and old statistical methods that are based on um, probability, um, trying to measure the strength of an association between a given set of inputs and an outcome of interest. Um, and at, at their core, these, these methods are correlational. Their outputs typically come in the form of distributions or probabilities, which are framed as forecasts or predictions of future events. So what I'm gonna argue today, though, is we actually shouldn't try to um, define artificial intelligence in terms of any sort of specific technological regimen. Uh, but instead, what I'd like to, uh, say is that in the context of the US penal system, the term AI has been invoked um, within um, 
uh, an interesting uh, con and contested discourse of reform, uh, one that's best understood as the most recent incarnation in a long lineage of state efforts to try to reassert legitimacy uh, during times of um, uh, significant social change and upheaval. In the field of criminology as well as sociology, the analysis and interpretation of crime data has always served as a critical point of departure uh, between more positivist subfields of the discipline, uh, which tend to seek to try to measure and manage um, criminal behavior within kind of risky populations. Um, and then uh, there are also critical scholars who tend to conceive of crime as primarily the byproduct of criminalizing discourses and practices that are carried out by the carceral state. Um, I've been really inspired by the work of a, a Harvard historian named uh, uh, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, who wrote this book, The Condemnation of Blackness, um, which traces the emergence of crime statistics um, uh, to the beginning of um, the 20th century. Uh, when we saw crime statistics serve as kind of a means of justifying disparate treatment of different racial populations within the United States at the turn of the 19th century. Um, this was during a time when the, demographic, the demographics of American cities were um, undergoing a significant change uh, because of industrialization, as well as a massive influx of migrant populations, both uh, African Americans from um, the US South, as well as European immigrants. Um, who are now coming to these, uh, these urban hubs in, in the north. Um, during this time, we saw actually the emergence of sociology and criminology as disciplines within the academy that uh, were particularly interested in studying kind of the defective and delinquent classes that were flocking to these cities in mass during this time. This is also a time when bioscientific theories of um, regarding the inferiority of um, the black population in the United States, things like eugenics, were starting to crumble under empirical scrutiny. And as a result, um, statistics that illustrated the overrepresentation of African Americans in US prisons uh, began to uh, serve as the empirical basis for new pseudoscientific <coughs> theories around the inherent uh, criminality of the black population. And it was also used to justify their exclusion uh, from really foundational critical um, social services such as education. Uh, Professor Muhammad really illustrates this in his work by servicing some, some quotes like this one from um, the former governor of Mississippi, uh, James Vardaman, who in <coughs> 1905 said, to school the Negro is to increase his criminality. Official statistics do not lie. And they tell us that the Negroes who can read and write are more criminal than the illiterate. In New England, where they are best educated, they are four and a half times as criminals as in the Black Belt, where they are most ignorant. The more money for Negro education, the more Negro crime. This is the unmistakable showing of the US census. So as we can see here, you know, um, the, authoritative, the authority of, of official statistics is very much invoked as kind of this rationale around excluding African Americans from um, one of the basic you know, foundational things that people need in order to kind of build a better life uh, for, for the next generation. And this was happening at a time when uh, many of those same scholars were actually interpreting um, very similar statistics about the overrepresentation of European immigrants um, as a call to action for poverty alleviation at the beginning of the progressive era, which is, I think, illustrated in this quote, which says, um, the whole problem of crime, as today expressed in society, is summed up in the problem of poverty. We have churches enough, schools enough, moral sentiment enough to regenerate the world in a decade were it not for the awful pressure brought to bear on nine-tenths of the human race, which is all, which all but forces them to be vicious. 
So what we see is, um, in, in a quote like this, is European criminality was really attributed to structural inequalities and poverty, uh, whereas black criminality was understood to be rooted in personal pathologies and inherent cultural inferiorities. And according to Muhammad, as black Americans were criminalized via statistical discourse, uh, the public became increasingly sympathetic to the plights of poor European Americans via these same kinds of statistics. Um, so in this context, crime statistics were not only a byproduct of racist ideas, but the very justification for them. Now, this inconsistent and racialized interpretation of crime statistics was challenged at the time by a number of academics, particularly African American scholars coming out of the Atlanta School of Sociology. Um, for example, um, we have professors like uh, Kelly Miller, who was coming out of Howard University's uh, sociology department, who, in response to Governor Vardaman's statement, uh, wanted to point out that yes, indeed, while it was true that um, uh, four, it was four and a half times more likely for somebody to be uh, incarcerated in the North if they were African American, white men were actually 10 times more likely to be incarcerated in the North. And, and he pointed this out not only to kind of talk about the inconsistency of the logic that was deployed by Governor Vardaman, but also to talk about um, the, the way we might want to think about interpreting these statistics. So rather than trying to draw a conclusion about you know, inherent differences in the criminality between you know, our southern population and our northern population in the United States, uh, he pointed to um, organizational and kind of bureaucratic differences that probably were the reason why these statistics looked different. So uh, New England being an area that uh, had much more kind of developed institutions at the time, had a much more sophisticated record-keeping apparatus, uh, probably just had a much uh, uh, more comprehensive view into their, their prison population than, than what was uh, available in the South. Um, so uh, there were a number of critiques like this that, were, that emerged from the Atlanta School, but most of them were systematically suppressed um, by the academy, particularly in places like the University of Chicago, which was immensely influential at the time uh, in really shaping the theoretical and methodological foundations of criminology in the United States. What I'd like to argue today is that contemporary debates regarding artificial intelligence and criminal law um, are best understood as just the most recent incarnation of this contested statistical discourse. Um, one which is occurring at a time when the, legit legi the legitimacy of the carceral state is being called into question in the United States. Um, so over the last two decades, we've seen some pretty si significant developments uh, in the way law enforcement kind of carries out their work in the U.S. Um, one is that we've seen a massive expansion in data collection, particularly in the wake of 9-11, uh, when, when we saw kind of a, uh, some pretty significant shifts in kind of the organizational logic of law enforcement agencies, very much towards a logic of preemption and widespread surveillance. Uh, and this included uh, things like adopting closed-circuit uh, camera networks and acoustic sensors, um, federally funded body cameras, uh, a wide, um, uh, massive expansion of biometric data collection uh, and forensic DNA base databases, um, as well as um, the entrance of a new, what I've heard um, a few different probation officers call growth industry of digital tracking devices for people who have come into contact with the criminal justice system in a different way. Um, Another significant development we've seen had actually um, started to emerge in the wake of the 2008 recession, uh, when we saw pretty significant demographic shifts, particularly in our urban and suburban hubs in the United States. Uh, so what we saw was an influx of pretty wealthy and white um, communities coming into um, 
or like dense urban centers that had traditionally been um, or historically been occupied by low-income communities of color, which resulted in uh, those low-income communities being pushed out to suburban areas. Uh, and as a result, uh, we saw kind of a collapse of formerly segregated spaces, uh, which made it harder for people to identify intruders in different areas. Um, and this led to a, 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 a demand for more um, spatialized and militarized policing practices um, that actually ended up transforming minority locales into these prison-like spaces beyond prison walls um, and led to a, a, you know, um, a many more kind of high-profile um, and violent encounters with law enforcement within these minority communities. So in response to these developments, what we've seen particularly in the last five to eight years is really a groundswell of political activity um, as abolitionist social movements have begun to uh, emerge to, to uh, challenge these developments. Uh, the most high profile one and well known one being Black Lives Matter, of course. Um, uh, and Black Lives Matter has explicitly aligned their cause with an abolitionist theory of change. Uh, one which focuses on creating lasting alternatives to punishment and, and imprisonment um, through the elimination of the tools and practices um, which uh, legitimate uh, and perpetuate um, uh, carceral practices in various forms. But it's not just Black Lives Matter. We've also seen around the country um, local community organizations starting to gain traction um, in um, lobbying for the elimination of practices that fuel detention. So particularly one that's been of interest to me is the push to eliminate cash bail, which is a major driver of pretrial detention in the United States right now. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, there are also organizations who've begun to make explicit links between the expansion of surveillance uh, and the perpetuation of mass incarceration. So that includes um, organizations like the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, as well as the Media Mobilizing Project. Um, all of these organizations have embraced this abolitionist um, framework in their work, uh, which seeks to kind of challenge this, um, the systems um, on, on the level of kind of epistemology. So abolition aims to kind of fundamentally reformulate the key concepts uh, which guide criminological work such as crime and punishment and safety, with the ultimate goal being that um, they want to move beyond kind of the default logics and assumptions of the carceral state uh, in order to address more foundational um, uh, types of violence uh, that are carried out by law enforcement practices. So in response to this uh, political activity, we've seen a new authoritative discourse and reform emerge, uh, one which centers the use of data-driven technologies which have often been branded as artificial intelligence. Um, these developments are fueled in part by a growing appetite and availability of data from within government agencies. Uh, and this in turn has attracted large tech companies such as IBM, Amazon, Palantir, uh, to seek out government partnerships uh, in order to gain access to this data. Um, and this is really seen as a, a way to gain a competitive edge in this kind of arms race um, uh, to, to hone predictive analytics, artificial intelligence platforms of various sorts. Um, so these public-private partnerships have really uh, given rise to a whole slew of new technologies which have been branded as artificial intelligence. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, the, you know, this, this, this umbrella term, artificial intelligence, also includes older technologies like risk assessment. So uh, in those cases, what I understand is kind of a process of rebranding happening uh, during the, these times when we, we, we're seeing big pushes for things like pretrial reform. 
This reform discourse is further bolstered by academia and private foundations, um, which often foreground engineering and data science as the key skill sets that are needed to quote unquote drive social impact through technical innovation. Um, in a wide range of high stakes policy realms, the, crim the criminal justice realm being one of the most popular. Um, but um, we're, we're seeing these different think tanks and research efforts pop up all across academia. Uh, things like the Chicago Crime Lab, the Stanford Compu Computational Policy Lab, uh, USC's Center for Artificial Intelligence uh, in Society, and my very own MIT, of which I am very much the recipient, uh, is, you know, we've also received now millions of dollars to study AI, ethics and governance, and criminal justice is one of our big focuses. So I'm, I'm very much implicated in these developments as well. Um, we also have major um, private foundations uh, who have also really embraced this rhetoric around data-driven reform within criminal justice. That includes the MacArthur Foundation, the Koch Foundation, um, the Arnold Foundation, there are a number of them um, which talk about now data-driven reform. One idea that features prominently uh, in this new um, conversation about reform is the issue of racial profiling and bias. So in response to research which has illustrated kind of the persistent and growing racial disparities in things like arrests and incarceration, um, we've seen a number of leaders call for the adoption of algorithms which can increase the accuracy and efficiency of criminal justice processes uh, by checking the implicit bias of decision makers within the system. The idea is that we can check the implicit bias of key decision makers like judges and police and prosecutors by presenting them with more accurate evidence-based claims about the likelihood of future events. And I find this framing particularly interesting for two reasons. One is it tends to circumscribe the problem of disparate impact uh, in terms of individually held beliefs, rather than as a byproduct of organizational practices or top-down policies. So that's one. The other one is that historical crime data, data tends to be characterized um, as objective fact, or you know, as Donna Haraway might call a view from nowhere that's placed in contrast to um, uh, some flawed and fickle subjectivity of a human decision maker. And I think this is, uh, you, you know really clearly illustrated in the case study of, um, for example, pretrial risk assessment, which I'm gonna try to use throughout this presentation as kind of an illustrative example of some of the main points I wanna talk about. So um, by way of background, over the last four years, I'd really say, you know, in recent times, there's been a really big push to de decrease uh, pretrial detention in the United States, uh, which has been fueled largely by abusive bail setting practices, whereby people are detained because they're unable to to pay the, the amount of bail that the judge has set for them. Uh, now, rather than eliminate cash bail, uh, many reformers have proposed that, uh, that we adopt risk assessments, which could help judges distinguish kind of signal from noise when making decisions about who to release before their trial date. Um, these pretrial release decisions are often framed, framed in terms of life and death, so really as high stakes decisions that um, there is very little room uh, for error um, in. So I've, I've actually interviewed um, a number of judges who've told me their biggest fear when making pretrial release decisions is that they'll release somebody who will go on to murder somebody on the street or something like that. And as a result of this kind of framing, accuracy, predictive accuracy is, um, has almost become this fetishized um, measure of a tool's value within the system. So it doesn't matter why a, t a prediction is accurate so long as it is. And I think this is most uh, compellingly illustrated in a quote by a professor from the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Dr. Richard Burke, who's both a statistician and a criminologist, uh, and a big proponent of pretrial risk assessments. 
And he said in 2013, uh, I'm not trying to explain criminal behavior, I'm trying to forecast it. If shoe size or sunspots predict a person's gonna commit a homicide, I want to use that information, even if I have no idea why it works. What's interesting to me though is that uh, this idea of accuracy is also really figured prominently in mainstream critiques of these same tools. So um, there are a growing number of researchers who are trying to understand how protected class attributes like race and gender um, mediate the accuracy of output from these types of tools. And I think the most high profile example that probably everybody in this room knows is uh, ProPublica's investigative report from 2016. which argued that pretrial risk assessments were not only not very accurate, and by not very accurate, I mean around 60% accurate, um, but that the brunt of that inaccuracy was disproportionately borne by historically marginalized groups, particularly African Americans, which is uh, one of the groups they they focused in on on the report. Um, And they framed this discrepancy of uh, inaccuracy in terms of bias. Uh, So they talked about algorithmic tools um, as running the risk of amplifying or reproducing pre-existing biases in the system. Uh, and these concerns have given rise to now what's quite an influential community for both within academia as well as industry, uh, which is interested in the study of fair, accountable, and transparent algorithms. So what I'm gonna do next is kind of talk about some of the major framings and efforts that are going, um, that are taking place within this community, uh, this community of fat algorithms. Uh, which is often the awkward shorthand for that. Um, The first framing um, uh, is really around this idea of trying to quantify trade-offs by mapping mathematical formalisms onto complex legal concepts such as discrimination, disparate impact, equity, affirmative action. Um, With the goal being that these researchers wanna uh, lay a foundation for more robust um, debate about the social desirability of these tools uh, by giving them conceptual precision in the form of these mathematical formalisms. In the context of um, pretrial risk assessment, there have been a number of uh, different fairness definitions that have emerged, but there are really two that people talk about a lot. So the first one is um, really kind of like the main, uh, kind of like traditional way that statisticians think about whether or not their tool is fair, which is um, whether or not a tool is well calibrated across all groups, which means Basically, if I bin or you know break up the distribution and categorize people in a certain way, the people within each um, category, the each label, are going to have roughly the same kind of likelihood of uh, possessing a certain quality or exhibiting some kind of behavior. Uh, so everybody in this high-risk group is, has about the same likelihood of, say, for example, being rearrested down the line. Um, ProPublica and other folks have have argued though that instead of thinking about calibration across groups, what we should really be concerned with is actually uh, balancing the rates of false positives and false negatives across different groups, particularly given that these these tools are only a little bit better than a coin flip at at predicting uh, the outcomes that they're most interested in. Um, So in this case, what what, um, people are calling for is really saying that your likelihood of being mislabeled, mischaracterized as as at high risk of being rearrested um, should be the same regardless of whether or not you're, you're black or white, male or male or female. Um, recent work has shown though that um, these two fairness criteria are actually mutually incompatible um, unless you ha- A, have a perfectly accurate tool, which, which will never happen, or B, um, 
the base rate of criminal activity across all of these different groups is the same. Base rate being that people are engaging in criminal activity. Um, yeah, the, what's the rate at which people are engaging in criminal activity? Um, typically when people talk about criminal activity, the proxy that they use for that is arrest data. Um, and um, unequal base rates has been kind of characterized as this endemic issue across groups, uh, rather than, for example, uh, uh, the byproduct of, say, discriminatory policing practices. Uh, and I think that's uh, well illustrated in this quote above, which says, uh, differences in false positive rates often tell us more about the underlying populations than about bias in the algorithm. False positive rates can mechanically increase with a group's overall rate of recidivism. In Broward County, which is where the ProPublica case study came from, uh, black defendants appear to reoffend more often than whites. And so a higher false positive rate is an expected consequence of any algorithm that accurately captures each individual's risk. So we can unpack this, you know, uh, here, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about accuracy, uh, mostly in terms of calibration, so that, like, that, that um, our risk assessment, that's well calibrated, is, is likely to um, render higher false positive rates for groups that seem to engage in crime at higher rates, given arrest data that we have. Um, and so, given that, we, this idea that, there's this idea that accuracy is actually kind of fundamentally inten uh, in tension with uh, attempts to uh, meet other fairness criteria, such as uh, balancing the rate of false positives within a group. We'll dig in more into that later, but um, I'm going to move on to the second major framing. Oh, no, I'm not. Sorry, I'm looking at the, the next slide. Um, so within the case of risk assessment, um, this is really interesting uh, because it's been used as a, a way of warning against actually these other, trying to meet these other fairness criteria uh, because uh, the people who we've characterized as the victims of um, overzealous false positive rates or historically marginalized communities are actually also the groups that would be most victimized by diminishing the accuracy of these tools. Uh, and I'll read you guys another quote that which exhibits this from Dr. Burke. Um, so by far the leading cause of death among young African-American males is homicide. The most likely perpetrators of those homicides are other young African-American males. There are legitimate concerns about fair risk assessments for accused perpetrators, but no such concerns about the consequences of fair risk assessments for their possible victims. Is that fair? So here we see that like um, accuracy is really posited as the most important value to uphold in these situations because the communities that bear the burden of those false positives are the same communities that uh, would, would actually benefit from this type of profiling given the grave dangers of, of murder and, and, and things like that. Um, now we'll, I'll say we'll talk more about that later. <laughs> um, so the second major framing that's, that's uh, become popular within this, this community around uh, fair algorithms um, is this man versus machine uh, formulation, which really tries to say, rather than trying to get mixed up in all these you know, sticky, uh, incompatible fairness criteria, why don't we just try to make some incremental gains in how accurate these, these high stake decisions are. are. Um, so uh, a lot of uh, these, these um, scholars like to point to literature from psychology, kind of uh, decision-making sciences of various sorts, um, which ha um, have shown that algorithms tend to outperform humans when making uh, predictions around things like recidivism. Uh, and the main reason being that algorithms have a systematic way of identifying factors that are deemed pre predictive of that future outcome. 
So there's a way of distinguishing signal from noise that judges aren't able to do it systematically. Um, some scholars have tried to prove this or demonstrate this empirically within the context of the criminal justice system, but that, that's actually proven quite difficult to do. Uh, and the reason for that is we, we don't have counterfactual data um, regarding people who are actually incarcerated. So we don't know what an, what an incarcerated person would have done had they been released uh, from jail. So it makes it really hard for us to talk about the accuracy of those decisions. Um, but that hasn't stopped people from trying to, to make these types of assertions around algorithms versus um, human decision makers. Uh, the way that usually works is they try to impute or generate, make inferences about what would have happened based on similarly situated people who were released. Um, uh, and based on those types of um, kind of statistical hoop jumps, um, they, they've made these claims, um, pretty high profile, well-cited well claims which say, um, in fact, uh, risk assessments are more accurate than judges in, in making these types of predictions. Um, and as a result, they've argued that, hey, listen, uh, risk assessments, other algorithmic uh, prediction tools, they really could serve as this, this uh, force of equity uh, if only we could you know, develop pragmatic uh, best practices for minimizing bias, um, which leads to kind of this third major claim, which is around pragmatic best practices, um, which really seek to um, minimize well-known kind of traditional notions of bias from within this kind of statistical literature. Um, things like sample bias, um, which occurs when algorithms are trained on data uh, that do not reflect the population on which they're ultimately used. Um, one recent study, for example, found that commercial facial recognition um, software that was designed to infer gender tended to perform worse on dark-skinned individuals than it did on light-skinned individuals. Uh, and it's, um, it's been understood that the, these differences in accuracy are largely due to the fact that um, dark-skinned individuals are not very well represented in the data sets on which these algorithms are trained. Um, so as a result, uh, people have taken um, these types of case studies and said, hey, listen, what, what we need to come up with are best, best practices around regular validation on representative data um, uh, so that we can continue to, to get rid of biases such as sample bias down the line. What I want to argue, though, in the next half of the talk is that um, bias and accuracy are actually inadequate conceptual anchors for this conversation around the social stakes of these predictive technologies, particularly in the criminal justice system, because they fail to interrogate the deeper theoretical methodological premises on which these tools are based. So we're, we're about at the halfway point. Are, we, are you guys still with me? We're doing good? Okay, cool. Um, so all of the arguments that I just kind of outlined, um, I think, regarding the accuracy of these tools are built on a shared epistemological assumption uh, that arrest, conviction, and incarcerated, incarceration data are best interpreted as information about, uh, that reflects individual proclivities towards crime, rather than as data that reflect deeper historical disparities in how the police and court officials treat different groups. Um, scholars have long argued that not only are crime statistics partial and biased, but that incompleteness of that, that the way we think of crime is clearly delineated along power lines. So, um, you know, some clear and interesting examples are from, say, for example, the 1960s, uh, when, um, you know, arrest statistics, uh, many activists were uh, arguing that arrest statistics were best understood as um, uh, uh, measurements of law enforcement practices. Uh, well, I'm sorry, that, uh, that crime tended to, the, the, the 
law enforcement tended to focus on street crimes that were carried out in kind of low-income communities while neglecting other illegal activities uh, that were carried out in more affluent or white contexts. So in the 1960s, the peak of the civil rights movement, the you know, anti-war protests and things like that, um, we had groups like the American Friends Service Committee, um, which argued that um, actions that clearly ought to be labeled criminal uh, because they, uh, the, they bring the greatest harm to the greatest number are in fact accomplished officially by agencies of government. Hundreds of unlawful killings by police go unprosecuted each year. And in the Vietnam War, America has violated its constitution and, inter and international law. Uh, so statements like this um, really are trying to point out the tenuous relationship between what actions are designated um, a crime uh, and what actions actually bring the most harm to our communities. Um, arguing that we actually, uh, the way we designate criminal activity often serves to, cr serves to criminalize the weak and protect the powerful. Um, this is also true um, for actions that we actually have designated a crime but actually uh, pursue uh, arrest and prosecution in very different ways for different populations. So, uh, you know, the most probably well-known example of this was the way that um, crack cocaine was prosecuted and, and punished versus powder cocaine in the United States. Uh, with crack cocaine being something that was largely used by very poor communities, mostly communities of color, and powder cocaine being used by very wealthy uh, white users. Um, similarly, in the 1990s, we started hearing more conversations around um, the differential ways that marijuana was prosecuted. Um, in spite of the fact that we know that you know comparable rates of usage exist um, uh, of marijuana, um, African-American males are prosecuted and convicted uh, five to eight times more frequently than, than white users of these drugs. So um, these, these types of case studies really try to point out that uh, people are arrested and punished at very different rates for things that we deem as criminal activity. Similarly, conviction and incarceration data um, primarily reflect the decision-making habits of judges and prosecutors um, and members of sentencing commissions rather than uh, a defendant's uh, criminality or, or, uh, or guilt. Um, and I've got a number of headlines up here of different um, studies that have come out which you know, illustrate uh, racial disparities in the way sentencing happens, the way char uh, prosecutors decide to charge people for various crimes. Um, and I think this research illustrates, um, is really interesting because it also illustrates a fundamental shift in the way that we could interpret crime, da uh, crime <coughs> and court data. Um, that these, these are claims, these, this type of research is, are making claims that actually make a fundamental shift in the way agency and responsibility is understood and reflected in, in these crime statistics and these prosecution statistics. Um, away from kind of the antisocial behavior of risky individuals um, and towards a, um, a carceral system that arrests and prosecutes and incarcerates people uh, in disparate ways. Yet this kind of recharacterization of criminal justice data is not nearly as common as it should be in the current moment of reform that we're living in. Um, and most of the work that we're seeing being done um, today around algorithmic reform is based on this fallacy of misplaced agency, whereby we're trying to evaluate and measure criminal proclivities as opposed to um, uh, understand and surface disparate treatment of individuals. Uh, this fallacy of misplaced agency definitely exists within the risk assessment conversation. So uh, this is that high profile paper I was talking about, which has over 150 citations since it came out in 2017, um, and very much says that for convenience sake, we're going to in, uh, include outcomes like rearrest 
um, under this big category of what we call crime. Um, and in doing so, we're completing the arrest of individuals with criminal activity or base rates of criminal activity across these different groups. Um, the authors of this paper did that in order to be able to impute or make assertions about what people who were incarcerated would have done had they been released um, from jail. Um, and in service of a larger argument around algorithms being more accurate than judges um, in making pretrial release decisions. Um, but it's not, in, in the context of pretrial risk assessment, it's not just an issue of um, conflating arrest with criminality. Um, it's actually a, a more serious than that. What we're seeing is actually uh, many risk assessments um, fuel a deeper conflation between um, arrest and dangerousness. So um, in the context of pretrial risk assessment, it's actually not constitutionally permissible to detain somebody before their trial uh, in the US unless they present a clear and present um, risk of flight um, or a clear and present danger to the community. Um, historically, dangerousness has been pretty ill-defined in the courts, and that's led to a pretty massive expansion in pretrial detention, even though um, um, the incidence of, um, uh, of arrest for a violent offense um, within the pretrial release population is very, very low. Somewhere between less than 1% to about 3% of the population uh, are arrested for, the, for crimes such as assault, uh, battery, murder, uh, rape, those types of things. Uh, this low prevalence of violence crime actually makes it quite difficult to make uh, actuarial tools that can predict uh, um, the incidence of violent crime uh, better than a coin flip. Um, and the reality is even if you could predict this pretty accurately, uh, mo everybody who, who is subject to a risk assessment uh, would probably come off as low risk just because the odds are very low for everybody. Like it's just not a, it's not a common set of events to have happen. Um, but rather than um, abstain from trying to predict violent um, criminal activity, the developers of most of these pretrial risk assessments have opted instead to substitute general rearrest data, the things you know, uh, such as loitering, trespassing, jaywalking, um, substitute those types of data um, as a, a measure of, of the potential for dangerousness just down the line. Um, in order to get a stronger relationship between the inputs that they put into these models and the outputs in the end. Uh, and I think that's best reflected up here. This is a dashboard for a really popular tool, um, uh, pretrial risk assessment tool. And you'll see two, two um, risk measures here, new criminal activity and failure to appear. This, this risk tool also has a, uh, a measure for new violent criminal activity, but they don't include it on this dashboard. Uh, instead, they just include this, um, this measure of new criminal activity, which is based on generalized arrest data. Um, and if you're rated as high risk, you'll see a, a, um, a warning come up that says elevated risk of violence. So very clear kind of link being established here between rearrest and, and violence. Um, this conflation has serious ripple effects for defendants. Um, you know, there's well-documented uh, evidence that when somebody's incarcerated before their trial date, um, you know, it, it can affect housing stability, it, it can um, put you in jeopardy of losing your job, and um, you're, mu you're much more likely actually to be convicted of the, the crimes you've been charged with. Um, and these concerns are often acknowledged by proponents of risk assessments, uh, but then they're also often placed right alongside fears of rape and murder and assault, um, which I think is reflected in this comment here from a paper that was just published maybe two months ago by uh, Kat Sunstein over at Harvard, um, who said, 
Um, if defendants are incarcerated, the long-term consequences can be very severe. Their lives uh, can be ruined. But if defendants are released, they might flee the jurisdiction or commit crimes. People might be assaulted, raped, or killed. Uh, now, he wrote this in a paper called Algorithms, Trauma uh, Correcting Biases. And the bigger argument of the paper is that algorithms, um, like we've mentioned before, could serve to course correct some well-known cognitive pitfalls of judges and other decision makers. Uh, pitfalls like um, availability bias, which is um, a bias whereby we, we overestimate the likelihood of a, of a given event occurring, uh, say, for example, a shark attack, because of uh, the frequency with it, which it, it kind of invokes in popular discourse or in the media or whatever. Um, what I think is kind of like perhaps sadly ironic here is I think this type of um, uh, continuous invocation of the risk of assault and rape uh, and murder, uh, which is usually placed right alongside these other very real and known risks of, and harms of pretrial detention, might actually end up fueling the very biases that they're purporting to try to mitigate. Uh, because we're, we're talking about them as if they're these very common instances that are happening all of the time. Um, so predictive algorithms um, that are based on these widespread mischaracterizations of the data, I think underpin a moral economy uh, that justifies um, the exclusion and rep uh, repression of marginalized populations through the construction of risky or dangerous profiles. Um, the political economy of algorithmic systems rests largely on the fallacy of misplaced agency uh, to make authoritative claims about an, an individual's uh, criminal proclivities. Um, more representative date framings of the data would produce less powerful claims. They would be claims such as likelihood of rearrest, um, or they would give rise to a different set of research questions that would directly challenge the practices and logics of the carceral state by trying to ask questions around, okay, a disparate treatment of different groups by, by the, the system itself. Now, in the present moment, there are people who are protesting this characterization of um, criminal justice data. Um, here's a, um, a public letter that was issued and signed by over 100 civil rights organizations just last year, um, uh, in which they said, you know, the data driving many predictive algorithms, such as prior failures to appear and arrest rates, are profoundly limited. Uh, decades of research has shown that such data primarily document the behavior and decisions of police officers and prosecutors rather than the individuals or groups uh, that the data are claiming to describe. You know, they've beautifully summarized the point I've been trying to convey for the last 10 minutes. Um, so in, in doing so, in making these types of arguments, um, the, the signers of this letter have joined a long lineage of critical scholars and activists who contested the interpretation of crime statistics. Uh, and what I'd like to argue today is that the discourse regarding fair and accountable and transparent algorithms in AI um, is just the most recent incarnation of this historical struggle over the interpretation of justice data. To date, the lion's share of research in this area has uncritically embraced the epistemological assumptions of mainstream criminology. And in doing so, they continue a long tradition of centering uh, reform to what Michael Lynch called um, the, the sciences of oppression. Uh, which seek to profile and surveil marginalized communities. Um, so this scholarship not only provides a mechanism for the consignment and control of the quote-unquote dangerous classes, but it also creates the very processes through which these populations are turned into deviants uh, to be controlled and feared. So where do we go from here? I think the first step is really for us to fundamentally recharacterize and reframe the role of science and the study of crime in producing meaningful change in 
in criminal justice. Uh, by understanding this tension between mainstream academic work and more critical scholars uh, during these moments of political upheaval. Um, I think the, the case of facial recognition is perhaps the most advanced in terms of this discourse and this tension in uh, both academic circles as well as mainstream press, because as I mentioned before, we've seen a big push towards trying to um, increase the diversity uh, and, and improve the representation of minority groups uh, within the data sets that facial recognition algorithms are trained on um, for the purpose of improving the accuracy of them over time. And what we've seen though is actually um, a number of um, both activists and critical scholars push back on this, this, this framing um, of the problem and the solution. Um, this is a quote from a piece uh, by an activist named Nabil Hussain um, who said, the reality of the foreseeable future is that the people who control and deploy facial recognition technology at any consequential scale will predominantly be our oppressors. We should, why should we desire our faces to be legible for efficient automated processing by systems of their design? The struggle for liberation is not a struggle for diversity and inclusion. It is a struggle for decolonization, reparations, and self-determination. So in this quote, Hussein recontextualizes the issue of artificial intelligence within a structural critique of the carceral state um, as a fundamentally punitive system of social control. Um, and in doing so, he rejects the attempts uh, made to improve the accuracy of technologies that are designed to make this system more efficient. Um, Hussein then proposes a different set of values on which to base a counter-imaginary about the future of the carceral state, um, one which centers um, the pursuit of agency uh, and healing within historically marginalized communities. It's important to note, though, that this approach does not reject wholesale the use of data and technology in the carceral state, but rather it requires a radical reformulation of the key concepts and assumptions uh, which undergird the adoption of new technologies in this context. Um, it requires a shift away from um, um, for example, under, uh, trying to measure criminal proclivities to trying to measure processes of criminalization, um, from supporting law and order to increasing community safety and self-determination, um, and from surveillance of risky populations uh, towards accountability for state, state officials. So really what I think Nabil is asking us to do is really try to shift the uh, assumptions uh, that undergird the, the adoptions of these technologies and the type of research we do. Uh, and I think there are three major assumptions that I'm the most interested in. Uh, one is, what are the questions that are worth asking? Um, and then, what is the data, what are the data that constitute relevant and authoritative evidence uh, to answer those questions? And finally, what epistemological assumptions should be used uh, to make claims based on the available evidence? Uh, what I'd like to do is, you know, um, talk about some of the work I've been trying to do uh, in trying to support and identify groups that are actually engaging in uh, the area of pretrial reform based on a different set of assumptions. Um, so, um, in, in the case of pretrial reform, um, there have been various attempts, legislative attempts as well as like state Supreme Court efforts, uh, efforts to try to reduce um, the use of cash bail and really change kind of court practices around uh, uh, bail. Um, that, that includes state Supreme Court orders which have um, mandated, for example, that judges inquire about afford uh, ability to pay before setting bail, um, as well as kind of legislative efforts which have outlined statutory guidelines um, around uh, uh, the use of cash bail for low and moderate risk defendants using risk assessment. 
Now, in most places, we have no idea about uh, how those efforts at reform are actually translating into core practices on a daily basis. And that's either because the data, <coughs> the data needed to ask, like, answer basic questions about these reforms is either um, not collected, or it is collected, but it's not made available to the public for, um, for deeper scrutiny about these reforms. Um, so as a result, um, around uh, the country, we've seen um, what we call court watching efforts pop up, uh, which are basically efforts to train lay people to go into courtrooms, observe the proceedings of the court, and actually collect data about uh, the behavior and decisions of judges and prosecutors primarily. Uh, and I've been involved in supporting that work within Massachusetts, um, where currently um, CourtWatch MA has been uh, engaged in a hundred day, first hundred days campaign. So we just elected a new district attorney in Suffolk County. Uh, a lot of people were excited about the election of Rachel Rollins because she actually um, made some pretty specific commitments around how she was going to uh, decline to prosecute, uh, uh, prosecute certain types of charges and then also decline to ask for bail for, for different kinds of charges. So um, uh, we've had um, dozens of court watchers going into the court since January and really trying to document, um, this might be a little small for people to read, um, but this is today's day 50, halfway through, um, and just kind of a summary of what people have observed, um, such as racial disparities are still pronounced uh, and that charges that Rachel Rollins pledged to decline are still being prosecuted. Uh, people still held on unaffordable bail, stuck in jail on crimes of poverty. Um, so very much um, the focus right now is trying to do a rapid turnaround where we collect the data on a weekly basis, try to run some analysis on that data, and then push it out as part of this continuous pressure to, um, uh, to hold Rachel Rollins accountable for her promises. And uh, so far, um, it's interesting because we are seeing steady improvements. Uh, as, uh, uh, we, you know, we can't take full responsibility for that, but um, it's really exciting to see uh, this this um, rapid kind of translation of data into conversations about accountability and actually see results. Um, court watching efforts are also working to expand the types of data that are collected uh, uh, in order to measure the harms and benefit of different carceral technologies. Um, that, um, that have been posited as alternatives to pretrial detention, things like electronic monitoring and mandatory drug testing. Um, many of these technologies um, right now are not very studied in the pretrial context, but where they are studied, um, the academic scholarship across the board pretty much eliminates um, any sort of um, input from people who are actually uh, subjected to these technologies and, and don't actually engage with the population who's the most at all. Um, so what's really interesting is that uh, court watch efforts are really trying to um, surface the lived experiences of people who, who are um, uh, being uh, subjected to these types of technologies as an alternative to, to detention. Um, and in doing so, um, I, I think court watch is trying to wrest back control over what's considered authoritative knowledge and expertise in these contexts. Um, by centering the voices of lay people like court watchers as well as the lived experiences of people who are directly impacted by this, these uh, new te technological regimes. Um, and in doing so, I think they're really um, laying a, like a path forward around how you might think about engaging with um, creating data, analyzing data, expanding what we think of as data uh, from an abolitionist perspective. So 
Um, for me, an abolitionist understanding um, of the role and function of the carceral state um, provides us with the opportunity um, uh, to uh, fundamentally reformulate the types of questions we ask, um, the way we characterize existing data, and how we identify and fill gaps in existing data regimes in the carceral state. Um, the igniting of an abolitionist imaginary is especially important in the co current political moment. Um, uh, when the term artificial intelligence has been deployed as a means of uh, justifying and depoliticizing uh, the expansion of state and private surveillance amidst this growing crisis of legitimacy. Um, and under the authoritative rubric of evidence-based reform and AI, um, law enforcement officials have really reframed these contentious social issues in terms of technocratic shortcomings, uh, issues of information access and interpretation. Um, I think that efforts to increase the accuracy of predictive um, and evaluative systems like this run the risk of circumscribing deeper ideological and epistemological struggles within these narrow technocratic um, debates about how we make these processes more valid and accurate and fair. Um, for me, the key question is whether or not predictive tools reflect and reinforce um, punitive practices that drive disparate uh, outcomes in these systems, uh, and how data regimes interact with those ideologies to naturalize those practices. Um, conversations regarding the ethical stakes of AI and criminal law must interrogate the default logics and assumptions of the carceral state uh, in order to address the foundational violence of law enforcement and courtroom practices. Only then, I think, uh, can we hope to reimagine the use of data and technology uh, in this context in order to explore uh, and create lessons alternatives um, in the future. So with that, I'll finish. Thank you so much.